We're here with Ingrid Backman. <laughs> this is Swivel. It's February 6, 2007. And uh, um, Ingrid is here uh, just back from our show in Toronto, opening a show in Toronto. And uh, welcome. Yeah, welcome, Ingrid. Pleasure to be here. So uh, tell us about your show in Toronto. What, what's, what are you presenting there? Well, the show is entitled Zoo, and it's a three-person show. It's with um, Garnet Hertz and Amy Youngs, and it's all artists who work with animals. And so Garnet Hertz works with a cockroach-controlled robot. Amy Youngs works with crickets. And in this show, I've been working, I've been showing a piece that I've been working on since about 2000, which is with hermit crabs. And what's it called? It's called Digital Crustaceans Homesteading on the World Wide Web. And I could probably talk forever about hermit crabs. <laughs> because I first discovered them in about 1996 when I used to spend some time on the Jersey Shore. I was living in Chicago at that time and um, teaching at the Art Institute. And I would spend a few weeks every summer on the Jersey Shore. It's where I first discovered hermit crabs. And hermit crabs are born without a home. So they're a family of crustaceans that essentially are born entirely vulnerable. And so they have to find their homes in the abandoned shells of other crustaceans or whatever else they can find, even a tin can if need be. So at that time, they seemed to me this really perfect metaphor <clears throat> for an exile, an immigrant, a refugee, or someone who feels in some way disenfranchised mm -hmm. from okay. where they are. It's so uh, could you describe your piece? <clears throat> what, uh, well, this what piece turned see. out to be quite different. So this is mm -hmm. version four, and I've started to now title some of my work the way you uh, title software upgrades. Right. So I don't know if this show is an upgrade, but it's a version <laughs> four. And in this case, uh, there's five hermit crabs instead of the one. And the hermit crab still tries to find a home on the internet. In the first version, um, Pookie, which is the name of my hermit crab and also the name of, a, it's an arbitrary unit of measurement in cyberspace, mm -hmm. tries to find a home on the internet. And at that point, he tries to find the, the home in websites and various muds and moos. But for various reasons, he doesn't find a home there. And he sort of at that point discovers the actual material base of the internet, all the submarine light cables and satellite systems that constitute the base of this so-called virtual space. Um, in this version, a motion capture system tracks the movements of the crab in a terrarium and these are then plotted to make kind of daily drawings. So each day for the period of the um, so six weeks that the show is up, the, the trackings of the daily crab, um, of the crabs are, are make these drawings. At the same time, that same information um, also moves their avatars in second life. So this is a new component to that. Second life is uh, a website devoted. Well, it's not a website. It's a three D virtual world. Okay. And that anyone can um, have an avatar on. You can also buy property. Uh, American Apparel has uh, a store there where they sell virtual T-shirts. Writers <laughs> has a news office. <clears throat> so that's the newest component, and that also came about to a large part with the um, programmer I'm working with, Pal So Sayer. Pookie has a website. So Pookie has a life, a second life uh, avatar. Well, he has a second life avatar, and um, it's interesting because when you go to Second Life and I guess it's one of the ways in which this project seems to reflect my constant fascination between the kind of stories we tell ourselves sort of as a culture about the technologies and about myths of progress because when you go into when you have a pick your choice of avatars there's only humans they're all under 25 
They all have incredible bodies. So in fact, they have very much to do with real life. Um, and so I think you can possibly be African-American, you know, a male, but you certainly can't as a female. So in a way, it's interesting how this so-called new space, virtual space, reflects so many of the values of ours. Mm. So it's that's an, a kind of a new exploration for this piece. But basically, it's again this basically very low-level biological entity, the hermit crabs, determining a rather well sophisticated technological apparatus. Mm -hmm. and I enjoy that contradiction. So people walking into the gallery, they'll see the drawings, I imagine, they, of the, that are created by the, the tracking sensor of the crab. And then uh, how did they find out about the second life? Life. Well, the first thing you see when you come into the gallery is a plotter. So you see right. the plotter that kind of produces the drawings. You also see a monitor that's embedded in a table that also tracks the movements of the various crabs. Then mm. you see a terrarium, and it's quite a Lexo crabitat. It's about five feet by two feet. It's about three feet off the ground. And then behind that is a monitor that shows their second life avatars. Mm. Because we couldn't have a crab or an animal species as an avatar in second life, uh, Pal built an object, which is the crab shell, that we've attached to the avatars. So now we have, uh, instead of crabs inside the shells, we have sort of human avatars inside them. Right. Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about your research, Ingrid? I mean, in terms of, you know, I think you mentioned that um, you're involved with Hexagram and uh, you have a new name for your uh, research team. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about who they are and who you work with? Well, that's a really important part of work, and actually a big shift, because um, in the last few years, I'm a founding member of Hexagram, which is a media research institute that crosses, um, it's mainly between Université de Québec à Montréal and also Concordia, but also includes some researchers at McGill and University of Montreal. And it was a, it's a media arts lab that was founded <clears throat> to kind of um, cross, to be a cross-disciplinary bridge between both universities and also disciplines. What I think is unique about Hexagram is that it really, right from the beginning, there was an insistence that media art was not only screen-based, that it also belonged into the world. So ubiquitous computing, wearable computing, robotics are all very much a part of this lab. We have 3D pro rapid prototyping. And for me, that, that sense that computing it does not belong, or digital does not belong into that realm of uh, the virtual only, or the screen, that it also belongs into the part of everyday life. Uh, <clears throat> was a really important aspect for me. We were required to kind of have names for our labs, as they're called, and I wanted to come up with a name that was that sort of reflected the kind of somewhat interventionist and also artistic nature of our particular studio. So we're called the Institute of Everyday Life, and right now I work with two undergrad students, Dana Dalbao and Alphonsoise Vauti, and at the graduate level, um, uh, Pal Thayer, who's from Iceland, mm -hmm. and um, Chris Flower, who's a former graduate student, and also Eric Conrad, who's a PhD student from Baltimore. So mm -hmm. I think we probably speak the most diverse languages in our group. Alphonse was originally from Belgium, so mm -hmm. I think we have about 10 languages. That's quite diverse. <laughs> That's great. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you also about um, the piece that you did with the shoes. Um, you seem to be quite excited about that piece, how it's been developing. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? That piece is called Symphony for 54 Shoes and it has a subtitle, Distant Echoes. And in this case, this is also a kinetic artwork. And again, it kind of, I think, I like it because it reflects my interest in, 
indicating how we place technology. In this case, the main component of the work is 54 pairs of old shoes that have come from Value Village and the Salvation Army. They're each um, mechanized. They each have show. Uh, each have a toe and uh, heel tap that are used for tap dancing attached to them, so they can tap dance. Uh, and they're, the movement is created by solenoids, which are kind of magnetic sensors with a shaft that move up and down. So actually, my shoes don't totally dance. They move up and down. Mm-hmm. In the um, exhibition, I actually, they don't tap on anything. So the movement and the sound is created by the solenoids. And so they have a particular characteristic that I, I like to call tender or even pathetic technology. So technology that works doesn't work the way it might be intended. The shoes don't tap. It's not maybe a spectacle, but in that space of not working quite right, something else is kind of created that I hope is maybe even more wonderful. So you're, so the, <clears throat> the, you're kind of referring to the tap dance sound through the solenoids yes. and, and trying to create, what, a sense of loss or something well, or melancholy? Also, or, well, wonder. You know, yeah. I think it has both. And this is mm-hmm. the first piece in a long time that isn't interactive. It's programmed randomly. And in this project, I worked with Eric Conrad, who's a PhD candidate at Concordia, and who he designed and developed four circuits for the piece. Although the piece could be made to be interactive, I really wanted this piece to be outside of human. I, I didn't want the human to be the first point of interaction um, <clears throat> or the cause of the interaction. I didn't want people to go and try to perform in front of it. I think in some ways it's a little bit the same with the hermit crab wanting you know these crabs don't really perform for for us they Mm -hmm. do their things and they create something else so it's again working with expectations and shifting them so yes i think there is i mean i suppose there could be seen as a sense of loss in these shoes i did want them to stand in for um not for any specific individuals but to stand in for individuals and i wanted their tapping one begins here another then a few others to be kind of an insistent reminder of we're here, um, we don't quite do what we're supposed to, but mm-hmm. we're still doing something interesting. And uh, I think that that kind of piece sort of does express a lot of my mm-hmm. <laughs> aims around technology <coughs> that isn't purely uh, kind of linear or functional. How, how do you work the relationship between art and artwork and it's the technology for producing it? I'm just thinking of, you know, a lot of technologically heavy works founder because the person spent too much time working on the developing the technology but you know I think we were just talking about more recently that's I'm seeing much more technologically heavy work that is much better refined and that what 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 is it that makes a good you know how, how do you describe the integration of technology into your work. Like, What is it about technology that interests you? Or... Well, I think I've always been interested in technology and I <clears throat> don't actually know why. And I've always, I've done all my works, usually I've always had an analog and a digital version of them. Hmm. And when I first began working with interactivity, it was really important for me to have, to really understand how people worked, and that's how I developed a, a chalkboard piece called Talking Walls, Dialoguing Grid and Plato. Mm-hmm. In that, I learned a tremendous amount from that, just seeing how people do that. So almost every piece has a, has a virtual and an analog element. So mm. I don't actually distinguish. I don't really believe in the digital divide, mm. and I think that's something I kind of carry in my work. So I don't, it is all kind of a work and a problem solving, and sometimes it's as much problem 
to resolve um, a mechanical issue or a conceptual issue or an aesthetic issue mm -hmm. as it is a technological one. I work with other people. I, my work is generally idea-based, really. I, I come up with drawings, yeah. usually. All my work comes up with, starts with these obscure drawings that end up becoming these rather elaborate installations, sometimes maybe too elaborate. Uh, and then I usually ask, just ask a lot of questions. I also look for real-world analogies. If I'm on a certain motion, does a windshield wiper do out of a car, you know? Mm, right. And then I, I talk to a lot of people, and I also... I also see that discussion as part of my artwork. Mm -hmm. I, I see it as a kind of maybe advocacy for arts that I think is really critical because mm -hmm. I've talked with seismologists and they say, well, is this art? I say, well, I don't know, but <laughs> let's do it anyway. Yeah. So I also rely very much on other people and they really, I think they really shape the work. And I, I like that. I've been quite influenced by certain notions of um, generative behavior from the field of artificial life where I guess the kind of view of art is where you kind of, as an artist, I want to kind of create a circumstance or a situation where things can happen. And it isn't a blank slate, it's a blank slate for graffiti, it's, it's a charged space where different things happen. It, it, there's always an element of risk, I don't always um, know what will happen or have control and I, I find that more stressful than I'd like to admit, mm. but I, I'm still very committed to it, it's still the most uh, exciting part of it. But I've worked a lot with a number of um, programmers and I've been really it's been really interesting to see how um, <clears throat> many of them um, you know really contribute in very different ways I know some very basic programming and I realized after taking some classes and that I it that would be another career mm -hmm. and that I didn't want to um, kind of go in that direction and I also feel by not knowing the technology the programming completely I also can I ask for things that I don't know if I'd ask for if if I were too familiar with it so I think there's a certain extending sometimes but you also have a sense of its limitations just it's, by having at least taken a, a few steps in that direction <clears throat> yeah and I also I can read patches and that to me mm -hmm. was also really important mm -hmm. and also I think that I'm not dependent on I can make I can make work within my own limits too. Right now, because I'm in this situation at Hexagram where I do have research assistants for the first time, which has really changed my way of working because I don't want them to just like, oh, cut lumber for me for eight hours. It's, um, it's, 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 it's been quite interesting and so it's allowed me actually to realize some pretty extravagant pieces that I just, you know, ideas I've always wanted to do that I, you know, I really couldn't do either without the uh, you know, uh, financial support and also just the, <clears throat> well, the people around. And moral and yeah, yeah, that's something I wanted to talk about support. too is um, what you've been explaining to me. It's, it's really interesting in terms of how, who you work with, the type of research you do, the type of experimentation and um, these experiments, how they transform themselves and then they take themselves into another space and um, digital media now seems to be, uh, it was something that was quite not understood when it first sort of came on the map and I'm wondering about that that distance. It seems to be closing somewhat, the people are, are also becoming, I mean we're seeing more and more artists involved in digital media, people are going to more shows and they're sort of understanding how these experiments, I, will hate, I don't want to use the word experiment <coughs> but they are quite intricate and um, 
And in a way that um, maybe, you know, the way that you're explaining it, I wonder how you kind of bridge that gap between the viewer and what you do, because a large part of what you do is conceptual. So. Well, I think there's also a really strong material base. So I'm really invested in the visual nature and also, or the, the tactile nature of the work in some cases. And I think that's one of the things that I think is really critical. I think sometimes in art and science or in technology collaborations, the technology, because it's, uh, it's newer, in some ways it's sexier, is, is kind of privileged over the really valuable things that I think artists bring. So I think it's so critical that this doesn't stay a divide, that certain practices aren't privileged over others, either financially or in terms of grants or in terms of exhibitions. Mm -hmm. Because I think that um, what belongs maybe to the more traditional realm of arts is this incredible problem solving. Sometimes I would say just an ornery nature to demand certain things, even if it doesn't fit within a, a, a programming or mechanical sort of mm -hmm. apparatus. Right. And also the sort of sense of aesthetics. I mean, my main aim is to kind of communicate things. And I'm really, um, I really... It sounds very important <clears throat> as part of your yeah. practice. And that's words. why the engagement, that's also why I often use really ordinary materials, like the shoes are one example, and Symphony for 54 Shoes, and the portable Sublime, it is a, maybe a simpler piece. Um, there's no, it's all mechanical and kinetic works. But it's all made out of you know old suitcases and things that are found and reconstructed, and so this idea of kind of the wonder that can be created through humble materials and also maybe materials too that people have a, a relationship to and a history that I hope will be a kind of a point of entry into the work for them. When I first met you, were, uh, photographing your work, in fact, at uh, La Centrale, I think it was with the so giant knitting. Machine weaving. <laughs> weaving machine tied to seismological sensors in California and somewhere else. Uh, like, uh, how do you? What kind of trajectory have you? If you could think of a trajectory that your work has taken, what would it? Look, uh, I, how would you describe it? Well, I think in some ways, in some way, I co-edited a book with Ruth Schuing called Material Matters, and really I think that book. title that really matters is that this idea of grounding the technological into the physical world. Mm. The fact that we are in a material world, we have stakes in it. Mm -hmm. Certainly now with you know, the environment being a pressing concern, that's become much more of a, an issue than it was maybe a few years ago. But really a sense that we have, that this is a really important investment and that to separate these realms is really, has sort of really dangerous consequences. It also has a really long history in terms of that separation of material and mind and matter, transcendence, both mm -hmm. in religious and cultural and philosophical traditions, particularly mm -hmm. in the West. So it's a really a kind of a name to really assert that a lot of it just comes from straight curiosity. Mm -hmm. You know, with Fault Lines, which was a collaboration with Barbara Lane, we, I don't know, we had this strange idea that it would be great to translate seismic information from Montreal and Montreal simultaneously and to, to record that uh, information through a loom into a textile. Some of that was to kind of highlight the notion of how information is actually valued. I mean, that kind of information, which was very accurate, seismic information, if it's presented on a computer screen as a digital printout, it has a certain legitimacy as being mm -hmm. correct or truthful. 
And yet, as a textile, you know, people say, nice scarf. Right. And yet, big, big, 55 feet. That's how long the textiles were. But it was interesting, seismologists could read them. Mm. So there was that kind of sense that was really interesting. Also, the computer, the Jacquard loom, um, was actually seen as one of the forerunners of the computer. And so we have this, you know, technology that's seen as weaving, which is seen as feminine, old you know, not very sexy, and then we have digital media and hearts, mm. you know, all these really pretty well, gendered things. Whole vocabulary, you know? <laughs> a whole vocabulary, yeah. but like the, mattress, the ma matrix yeah. is yeah. obviously a mother uh, yeah. reference to maternal, uh, you know, history, and uh, or, uh, and it's, it's exactly yeah. And it's to that. realize that these are actually fictions. These are fictions that we tell ourselves about the technologies we use. And sometimes those fictions are useful for certain ideological purposes and uh, or sometimes for political purposes, for a whole range of things. So I think my aim is to kind of, I'm really interested in the stories we tell mm. as a culture and I'm also interested in the stories that individuals tell. Mm. I'm very interested in spaces, so I think like the Hermit Crab piece is actually, to me it fits into my site-specific work. The hermit crab is trying to understand the internet as a space, as an architecture, more than just this facade of uh, increasingly shopping in ad venues. Um, so I don't actually distinguish between what I do in the physical world, like a project like 48 Hours, which to me is a, a piece of generative, a generative artwork um, that in some ways has real kinship with digital crustaceans homesteading on the World Wide Web. Although I grant those might be harder <laughs> leaps for others to make. Um, your show is on right now. You just had an opening. Could you tell us when um, when it's on until and uh, when it's closing? And it's on until March 16th. It's at InterAccess. The show is called Zoo. It's at 9 Ossington, which is kind of corner of uh, Ossington and Queen in Toronto, right around the corner from lots of other galleries and a great kind of section. And I will be showing the Symphony for 54 Shoes at Groupe uh, Molière's new space. Where? The it's a new space that Groupe Molière is oh, yeah. putting together on Rose de Lima. Hmm. So that one show is timed for the same time as the Biennale. So I'm pretty excited about, about that as well. well. We're looking forward to that. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you, Ingrid, for coming today. Uh, it was really interesting to hear about your practice and what you do and share that with us. So. That was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks.